So here are the definitions, okay? Three of them. The first is the word reap. The next is gleanings. And the last is sojourner. What do they mean? And as I explain these definitions, listen closely because you're going to get the feel of what this passage was talking about. Uh, And then I'll add to that in a little bit. Reap. Reap is a verb. It describes people in a field ready for harvest, cutting off and binding sheaves of corn or wheat in order to bring them in from the fields for processing. It's the cutting and the, and the bunching step of bringing in the harvest, the produce. In ancient times, the person reaping would incorporate some sort of sickle in one hand, and he'd cut the stalks or the straw, leaving the other hand or arm free in order to catch them up into bundles while he cut. That is, that is to reap. Gleanings, gleanings is a noun. Gleanings are the dropped or undisturbed produce left in the field by the harvesters. Okay, so when the reapers were cutting and gathering, some of the crop was left untouched. God wanted the landowner to leave it there for the poor to harvest. Some other of the crop fell to the ground while the great harvest was taking place. This too, God wanted the landowner to leave in the fields. These crops left behind for the poor were called the gleanings. Sojourner is the final one. Sojourner is a noun. It's a person who is a foreigner, an alien who temporarily dwells in a land with the hope sorry, he temporarily dwells in a land that is not his or her own, or he's come newly to the land with the hope of living there forever, maybe as a proselyte. The sojourner in this text describes a foreigner living among the Israelites. He or she is either passing through or maybe has decided to stay, but as a sojourner, they have not the same rights of inheritance. They have not the same rights of religious ritual as the actual citizen does. So like the poor... A sojourner is at an economic disadvantage, and God wants them to be able to share in the harvest as well. Those are the, the three definitions. So let's look at the text again, Leviticus 19, 9 through 10. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. 
the text, okay, so it doesn't only refer to leaving the gleanings behind, which is field-related. But Moses, he also instructs that God does not want them to pluck or pick every grape or olive, you know, grape from the vineyards or olive from the olive groves. He doesn't want them to take it all. You see the olives for the olive groves in the Deuteronomy passage, Deuteronomy 24. So it's, it's not just the agricultural fields that are in consideration in these very agricultural times, but also the orchards, the vineyards, and the like. Unlike the reaping in the fields, okay, with the sickles, the vineyard and the groves would, harv- would be harvested by hand or with sticks and nets. The vine dressers would reach in and pluck the grape clusters from the vine, and the orchard owner would comb the branches for olives off the olive tree with a stick. And sometimes they'd take that same stick and beat the branch so that the olives would would fall down. Leviticus 19.10 says that they should not pick everything bare but that they should intentionally leave alone clusters of grapes and portions of olives, just as they should leave alone the stalks or sheaves of wheat and corn. And anything fallen to the ground of itself should be left, again, it's for the poor and the sojourner, to come in after the harvest, after the harvest, and put their hand to labor to gain the residual benefits of the landlord's property of his harvest. Uh, Kiel and Delich are commentators, and they say when the olives have been gathered by being knocked off with sticks, the custom then was to shake the tree so every last olive would fall. So the the ones they couldn't reach with the sticks, they couldn't affect with the sticks, they'd want to shake the the tree, shake the branches, and um, that was forbidden. It was forbidden in the interest of the strangers and in the interest of the orphans and widows. In other words, the harvesters, they're told to contain themselves. It's not all about the money. It's not all about every cent. It's not all about you getting whatever you can out of it. There was good reason to be less than thorough. They were not being wasteful, but they were actually taking care of of those less fortunate within their community. And And it wasn't as if they were enabling lazy people, okay, which alarm bells, you know, go off. We don't want to... And enable a lazy person, someone who doesn't want to work, no. The poor that would benefit from this law, they were, they were more your working class type people. It was going to take work to do what they needed to do, to glean. It was an opportunity for them to labor and get for themselves the benefit from the grove and the vineyard. 
It was hard work because usually the difficult bunches, the ones that couldn't be reached, the ones that were hard to get to, they were the ones left there, right? Those were the ones left behind. Nonetheless, it was for their taking if they wanted it bad enough. And by that, we're, we're reminded of the Apostle Paul's admonition. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. There's a theologian named John Hartley. He makes a, he makes a good point. He believes God prudently formulated this law for the good of the landowner and the poor. Hartley says this, On the one hand, it does not place an added burden on the landlord, for he does not have to pay for the collection of these gleanings. On the other hand, the poor and the foreigner maintain their dignity, for in place of a handout, they are given the privilege to labor for their own needs. They have to expend effort to benefit from God's grace manifested through the landlord's generosity. So this is a law of God that is mindful of the downtrodden, but it remembers them not as leeches, but as stewards. Not as idle people, but as those willing to work. It's a little bit, in my mind, like a soup kitchen that would require the poor to cook the soup, set the tables, and clean up afterward. Would they do it? Now there's your soup kitchen. It's a wonderful law in which every believer can do the things that God does. Remember, God's stated purpose for his people in verse 2 is, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. So if the Israelite farmer or vine dresser wanted to be godly, to be like God, then he would definitely consider the poor during the harvest. And the poor could live dignified in his work as well. They could both be like God. Consider, Christian, if God cares for the poor and for the sojourner, then, then so should we, right? This law tells us how. In Leviticus 19, 9 and 10, God has built in. He has built in inefficiency. As Matthew Sleeth says, he has built in inefficiency, which almost seems like sinful to the American businessman. Inefficiency. It almost seems like it shouldn't be that way. But it is intentionally planned inefficiency. It's a way for the landowner to provide for the needy if he would simply allow for it. God says to him, I want you to leave the gleanings. 
Now that Deuteronomy sister passage is worth repeating for it helps us to build this out a little bit. Deuteronomy 24, 19 through 22. It's there that Moses explains. When you reap your harvest in your field and have forgotten a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the alien, for the orphan, and for the widow, in order that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. That's big. When, when you beat your olive tree, you shall not go over the bows again, boughs again. It shall be for the alien, for the orphan, and for the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not go over it again. It shall be for the alien, for the orphan, and for the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I am commanding you to do this thing. So, God cares for the well-being of the alien, a.k.a. sojourner, for the orphan, and for the widow. This is a chorus. This is a chorus you hear throughout Scripture. I'll read a few. Zechariah 7, 8 through 10. And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. Ezekiel twenty two twenty nine. The people of the land have used oppression and exercised robbery and have vexed the poor and needy. Yea, they have oppressed the stranger wrongfully. Malachi 3, 5. And I will come near you to judgment, and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers. Listen to the group he puts this in, right? And I will, and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adult, adulterers and against false swearers and against those that oppress the hireling in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, and that turn aside the stranger from his right, and fear not me, saith the Lord of hosts. God's recurring song on behalf of the widow, orphan, and sojourner is compelling. It should also concern us to care for the foreigners within our own land. Temporary foreigners or full immigrants, they're always at a disadvantage. And it's difficult, it's easy to keep them at bay with different reasons because we don't speak their language. How do we even communicate with them? Or we believe that they've gotten here in ways that we do not approve of. And so if we're supporting them, are we then supporting something that we don't agree with? All of these little factors. Can you trust them? They're not like us. Whatever that means in America. Just like a family that has lost its head of household by death, the wife suddenly becomes a widow and the children orphans. Things become hard. They're hard for the sojourner too. And here is God, what? He calls himself the father of the fatherless 
and protector of widows in Psalm 68.5. He also describes himself as the one who watches over the sojourners in Psalm 146.9. And we're told to be like him. Leviticus 19.2. Look, as, as Christians, somehow we need to appreciate that God wants us to meet the needs of the sojourners in our land. And it's the church. We become his hands and eyes and ears here. And though the sojourners may not be citizens, still, still if they are found among us, then we should ask, how can I treat them and care for them as God would? For they are at a disadvantage as fellow image bearers. There's a good chance many of us don't think about the sojourners. Or we do so negatively, which is unhelpful. I know in one circumstance where Andy Nigren was able to reach out to a sojourner in the land, The man spoke very little and broken English, and Andy's been learning Spanish. And so he helped him with some car problems and then continued to attend to him for some time and his family. That's a good thing. This law suggests God wants us to be mindful of them. The sons of Jacob in the promised land would have no wall preventing aliens from coming into their land. But it it didn't mean the aliens who came in would freely go and do whatever they wanted. No, there was a law in the land of Israel, but it was God's law. And if God's people chose to love him and keep his commands, then that law was lovingly designed to also help the sojourner. Jacob Milgram writes, Concern for the poor, the widow, and the orphan is widespread throughout ancient Near Eastern codes and edicts. Israel, however, is unique in its solicitude for the gare, the alien. They were unique in their attentiveness to the foreigner, to the sojourner. The Lord reminds the Hebrews in Deuteronomy 4:24, sorry, in Deuteronomy 24:22, quote, "You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore I am commanding you to do this thing." Why does he say that? He tells them to recall their past. Remember your difficulties in a foreign land? You remember that? Oh, how often it is that we learn to be merciful merciful only after some hardship in life, right? There's no one better than a widow or a 
widower to empathize with someone who just loses their spouse. Because they know how that goes. And one living with chronic pain, chronic pain can sympathize and show sympathy toward a new sufferer in ways that a healthy person cannot really fully appreciate. Someone who hasn't experienced chronic pain. And so God reasons with the Hebrews that they should know what it feels like to be sojourners. If you remember what you and your parents went through, then then treat the foreigner as you would have wanted. I care for him. Leviticus 19, 9 and 10 is bringing in the sheaves and leaving the gleanings. I don't think this is a law that God wants the civil magistrate to enforce, right? Uh Uh-uh. In other words, if the landowner harvests and he breaks God's law, he harvests to the edges of the field and and picks up every scrap of wheat. And I I don't think he gets a fine or a ticket or goes to jail or any of that. And I believe that's because this law is based on the use of private property. The guy can do what he wants with his stuff. And it's also based on love. And it's also based on pity. God does not administer justice by the magistrate's hand when we neglect to do good. Nor do I believe he is given over the responsibility to the magistrate to impose its own version of care for the poor, the widows, the orphans, and the sojourners by taking property from people by force. You're not going to do it? Okay, then we're going to do it. Because someone's got to do it. When does the magistrate enforce God's law? By magistrate, I mean civil government, the government. When does the magistrate enforce God's law? I think think the determiner as a hermeneutical principle of interpreting the Bible, right? I think the, the determiner should be whether sanctions are prescribed for disobedience by God himself in the Bible. Did he prescribe certain punishments? Okay, then does that involve the civil magistrate, then that should be a law of the land then. There should be fines or tickets or imprisonment or execution, whatever it happens to be. I think that's a good rule to go by. Does God tell us in his word of a specific punishment that is to be applied for disobedience? He does it as an example when he says... uh, Uh, This person, this man who sheds another man's blood, in other words, murder, his blood shall be shed. In other words, capital punishment, right? Perhaps, I say perhaps, the best proof of the state's non-involvement in this harvest law is because it is a reflection of love and pity and charity. All for which God does not give the magistrate the sword to enforce. 
You're going to be good. I'll tell you, you're not good enough. I'm going to punish you. Right? That's not how it works. Just like the church government would likely not turn the screws on a non-tither, though you should tithe. I don't, don't think that God has given it to the church government to enforce it. Now, that doesn't mean he won't judge for disobedience. Indeed, in Deuteronomy 24.19, Moses actually tells them to leave the gleaning. What? In order, quote, in order that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. End quote. God, so God will actually multiply the goodness of their work and its fruit if they consider the poor in it. Of course, this implies the opposite of blessing. If you disobey him and his law. Now, I want to speak more on this law, but and in a more application-heavy way. But I'm not going to do that today. We're given a wonderful example of this law in the book of Ruth, and I haven't even brought that to bear on this. Ruth is a sojourner and a widow. She's both. And Boaz, okay, the landowner, if you remember the story at all, he sees her virtue coming early, staying late, working, showing great respect. And he lavishes her with extra gleanings. Great story. I encourage you to read the four chapters or whatever. It's a small book of Ruth before next sermon. Also, I think we should always ask this question when we're dealing with the law of God, with the Word of God for that matter. If we're trying to form or construct a Christian society, then how does this law help us? What do we do with it? Based on that question, we'll consider some principles within the law that we can apply to more than just fields and orchards and vineyards next time. We'll pray. Lord, I ask that you would attend to us, that um, this would be the, the kickstart of our, our thinking and uh, lay out the parameters of this law a little bit. I pray that you would um, make us a better people and not to be dictated by the uh, thoughts of the world around us, but to hold tightly to your word and apply it in our own lives, households, and community. In Jesus' name.